HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with like paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, finding your place. We all want to feel comfortable in our own place. That takes on different meaning for different people. For me at the moment, it's having a place to help my children grow into good people, surrounded by opportunities for learning, adventure, and family. For some people, it's a nomadic life in a van. For others, it's a safe place to sleep. Humans have been making a place for themselves on this planet for thousands of years, figuring out how to live, how to farm, how to travel, how to sit still. One constant is that we all have to eat, and I'm thankful that there are people like Meg Pasca out there to hold the torch of farming, community, and local economy. Meg wrote her first book in 2014 while living in Brooklyn and keeping bees. The Rooftop Beekeeper is an excellent guide for anyone looking to keep bees on a roof or otherwise. Since then, she's had a CSA-focused farm on the Jersey Shore before she and her partner Neil settled down on their own land, Biscuitwood Farm in Schoharie County, New York. I caught up with Meg last week by phone to talk about her journey. Hello? Hey, Meg, it's Harry calling. How's it Pretty good. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Meg, for speaking with me today on uh, on Feast Your Ears. Um, you are currently a farmer in Schoharie County, New York. Can you tell me about Biscuitwood Farm, uh, what you grow, what you raise there? Sure. Um, so Biscuitwood Farm is 
a sort of a third iteration of of our farm. Um, currently, we have dairy goats. It's a 50 acre farm. It's mostly all pasture, um, and we grow some cut flowers and some vegetables and raise egg laying hens on pasture. So it's um, a continuation of a sort of a diversified farming project. Um, though we're sort of uh, we're starting to learn a little bit more about um, the fine art of pasture management, which mm. we had never had the opportunity to do in the past. Um, so that's what we do. We're in a, one of the smallest counties in um, New York State. Um, little known, like not very fashionable, but it's a really beautiful <laughs> place, and like said, with really great people. Yeah, I was looking up. You, you're in. You're in the town. Ta- the town is Esperance. Is that right? I was looking up the population, and I think it's somewhere around 2,000 people, which, thinking yeah. <laughs> back to when you used to live in Brooklyn, there were probably 2,000 people on your block. Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite a shift in, in uh, perspective, uh, for sure. Um, was, <laughs> but I love it. really great. Was what is now Biscuitwood Farm historically a farm? Yeah. Um, it's, it's set up as um, a former dairy farm. And then uh, the most recent owners actually raised miniature ponies. So they bred and raised miniature horses. And um, so, yeah, it's it's a pretty well-maintained place, like all fenced with run-in sheds and a bunch of the paddocks and a big uh, Morton building um, and, like, a nice little farmhouse with, with updates that are tasteful. So... It's we got really lucky. That it all ended up being in our price range too, which is hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like it. I mean, having spoken with lots of other uh, you know folks in and around farming um, on Feast Your Ears, and obviously Heritage Radio covers a lot of stuff like that. Um, you know, it seemed it sounds like the kind of the real estate difficulties, as with so many things, is you know it's a huge uh, barrier and a huge hurdle. Yeah, you really, I think you really have to be willing to sacrifice certain aspects of like what you, what you're sort of envisioning and hoping for when you're shopping for a farm, like anywhere within like three or four hours of a major metropolitan area. Um, I mean, we looked, you know, in the, we looked all over near the Delaware River um, and every place that we looked at either had land that would have required like a tremendous amount of remediation Mm. or had a beautiful house and a tear down barn or, (laughs) you know, a tear down house and like a gorgeous barn. Right. It was always like imbalanced in in a way that like was really daunting. We don't have a lot of um, building skills between the two of us, between Neil and I. And so for us, we had to, after farming for five years, like we didn't want to like move to a place and then have to spend two years like completely rebuilding infrastructure. We really felt the need to move someplace, set down roots and like get to work. Yeah. So, I mean, we looked at numerous places and, and this is the first and only place to really hit all of the marks just happened to be a little further outside of the range that we had been looking but it's it's been really wonderful and um, it's got everything that we we want in a community and a home that's amazing so yeah. uh, moving backwards in time before you ended up in Esperance you were in New Jersey farming is that right on land that you didn't own yes yeah um, we were offered um, 
a leasing opportunity on an estate on the shore in New Jersey, just about 45 minutes uh, by ferry away from New York City. And so it was great because my partner still has a career in IT, so it gave him the opportunity to continue in his line of work while I could focus on doing the kind of work that I felt drawn to. And so, um, so yeah, we moved to it was a, t- a town called Rumson, which is an affluent area, which means it was a great place to have a small farm um, and have direct access to um, customers with a disposable income. Mm. And so we were really lucky. We moved there, and then right down the road, um, the owners from Carton Brewing lived there, and they were, like, really early adopters and supporters of what we were doing, and they, like, promoted us at the brewery, and so we got lots of local people um, excited to participate in our CSA, and so um, that's that's one part of, like, living in a more suburban area, more densely populated area that I miss, like, farming in that context. It's so easy to access customers, but we, we were there for five years and we did a 50 member CSA and sold that uh, sold vegetables and cut flowers and goat milk so at the farmer's market in Asbury Park and to a couple of restaurants that had popped up in Asbury Park during the um, the time that we were there so it was really great we couldn't grow enough stuff <laughs> um, for the market and um, it was really hard work but really rewarding nice so you mentioned that being in an area like that where you were closer to a metropolitan area had a larger population that was affluent that i guess could afford to help support things like your csa um yeah do you do you run a csa now currently i don't um it's you know it's we we live in an area where a lot of people do their shopping at walmart Mm. and so i i I, I basically right now collaborate with a CSA, a regional CSA, a multi-farm CSA that um, transports down to the city every week during the growing season called the 607 CSA. Got it. Um, and it, so now I basically send cut flowers and some eggs with them uh, to the city because it's the easiest way to get my product to um to customers that are willing to spend like what I need to sort of make back on a scale that I'm producing everything on. Sure. Sure. So it's really hard. I mean, it's a hard sell to get people around here to buy eggs for more than $3 a dozen. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of Amish farms here too. Um, And so, you know, they tend to sell products for a little cheaper because I think mostly overhead like the overhead cost of labor is less of an issue but they've got bigger families that all work together to like produce these things Um, so it could be a little more difficult to compete with that so um, so the way to get stuff down to the city without great expenses by collaborating with other farms it seems like that's really the ticket yeah and I mean I you know I think it's important that people who are listening to this and by and large I think most of my listeners are in cities you know remember that farming is in fact a business right I mean you know you might love doing it but you also need to support yourself and your family by doing it yeah 
Absolutely. Especially, and it's a business where in, mo- in most cases, you're only actually producing a saleable product for a portion of the year. Sure. And, and so, you can't take any time off, right? I mean, your goats need to get milked every day. There's no, you know, you can't just yeah. like, oh, I'm going to take next week off and go to the islands unless you can find somebody to milk your goats. No, no, you can't. And it's really difficult to find committed, committed laborers. Yeah committed farmhands and you know most people want to be able to pay those people a fair like anyone who works on their farm a fair livable wage but you know then that translates into a higher cost for product and most people don't want to pay for it and so it just it's it's sticky the whole the whole situation um, requires a great level of commitment so I've noticed looking at your your website, which is if people want to check it out, it's farmermegs with an s dot com. Um, you know, I also noticed that you sell uh, you sell honey. You recently sold a bunch. You had kind of a sale right before the holidays of some honey from your from your hives, and also you do uh, body care products. Yes, I I have to say that like selling selling goods on a website is sort of tricky for me because I, you know, I very clearly need the outlet of like web sales to help generate income for the farm. Sure. Um, it's a really important facet to what we're doing. Um, we don't have access to like a large customer base. Um, but I, the, the, the notion of produce taking, and focusing on one product and producing it year round, like in larger quantities at a larger scale, um, for me personally is deeply unappealing. I just really have an aversion to it. I think it might be, I just get sort of bored by the idea of just like cranking out the same thing over and over again. <laughs> and it's also just kind of how it, nature doesn't really work that way. Right. Uh, so I've been sort of reevaluating what that might look like, what it might look like to produce different things different, like during different times of year. And so there's like limitations in terms of what I produce in the spring and summer, but they're available during that time and maybe not another time of year. Like when our goats are not lactating, maybe in the, um, when the bees are not producing honey, I'm not selling honey. Um, right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I you know, and I think that there's a lot of value to that to people understanding, you know, understanding their food ways and understanding that seasonality. Um, and I think we've come a long way. You know, I mean, I, I talk a lot on this show about you know sort of where we're where we're at in terms of food. And uh, you know, last week I had Mark Winnie on, who's done a lot of food policy work over the past forty years, and we talked about how much better it's gotten, but we still have a long way to go. And I think, you know, what you're talking about is the idea that people expect to be able to get, you know, fresh milk or fresh eggs or fresh honey or, you know, any of those products at any given time because they're used to the industrialized food and maybe that's not necessary. Maybe, you know, you can get away with buying honey when the honey's available. You know, honey, I think, is a good example of one product that also lasts a long time. So it's not, yeah. you know, it's not ephemeral like raspberries, for instance, which yeah. you either need to eat immediately or make into jam or preserve somehow. You know, uh, you know, if you buy a quart of honey, you know, depending on what your usage is, you can buy that when it's being produced and that'll last you a decent amount of time. Definitely. I mean, another thing that 
the reason that I mean I don't inherently think that there's anything wrong with people producing something on a larger scale to meet the needs of a broader community and a wider customer base. Yep. But for me, I I don't have the personality for that. I think that that kind of work requires a certain personality, and I just I know myself. And the thing that I'm most interested in is. Um, kind of like visualizing and materializing small, localized, entirely seasonally dependent community where, you know, every, like, I, I live in a place, I was talking with me and my partner um, a few weeks ago when we were going to pick up uh, grass-fed meat from a neighboring farm that our region, like, we can produce all of the food that we need, all the nutrition that we need, a diverse a varied, interesting, like delicious diet from within just a few miles of our home. And I think that that is, I, I'm interested in pursuing that for myself and um, hopefully inspiring other people to uh, consider those things when they shop also. Yeah, I mean, I you recently on, on your Instagram account, I think, which is at Farmer Meg, you were writing some stuff about kind of sustainability and food um, related to having a perspective on a local food shed where you are involved in a, a local economy where you are able to go to that farm down the road, say, to buy grass-fed beef, but at the same time, you also can support a local restaurant where maybe they're not sourcing really expensive eggs that are raised super ethically, but those people are part of your community as well. Yeah, I mean, supporting them keeps keeps our local economy like moving forward in some, in some direction. Yeah. You know, I, um, we, I would rather see more like little diners around here than like the no like uh, a right. local economy. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think that if enough people start, you know, asking for things like, you know, seasonal fruit in their pancakes <laughs> or like local eggs, then, you know, if, if the demand is there for it, then these small businesses might feel inclined to give it a try. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, that there's the, you know, kind of the, the view, whether it's on Instagram or in books or in media or just people's sort of perception, especially as someone, you know, who recently also moved from the city to a more rural area, um, that there's this, you know, kind of like all or nothing idea um, mm -hmm. and people shouldn't let the perfect get in the way of the good and so yeah. i think that you know supporting that local economy and I, and I always felt that was true in the city as well that people do need to support their neighbors um even if you know some of the, the ethical choices around food are not the ones that you 100 percent want to make um mm -hmm. you can't influence other people if you shut yourself off from them yeah I think about that a lot in terms of the like organic versus, versus conventional mm -hmm. sort of debate um, that continues. Um, you know, most of the farmers around here are not, they're not organic farmers. They're like, they would, they would definitely call themselves conventional farmers, but, you know, they, they have a, a wealth of knowledge about land management and most of them, they know that um, by not respecting their land and like continuing to feed it and care for it that it won't continue to produce for them 
And so, you know, while some of them are using certain, like, more noxious sort of means to do that, many of them aren't because those those chemicals or those pesticides and herbicides, um, you know, tend to cost more money than just, like, taking a manure spreader and loading it up with, you know, cow manure and mm. spreading it out on their field. So um, I think that a lot of conventional farmers have gotten a really bad like wraps and I've sort of like warmed to the idea of like farming I'd rather see conventional farming than like absolutely no farming right I'd rather buy regionally from a farm that maybe doesn't spray but hasn't gone through all the organic certification rather than buy organic food from California you know I'm always going to choose someone who's producing in my community over something with like a higher level of certification that makes me feel good from like far outside of of my region. Right. Exactly. So I wanted to talk a little bit about books and about writing. Um, okay. So your, your book on beekeeping called The Rooftop Beekeeper is from, obviously you keep bees now, not on a roof, but in the past yeah. when you lived in Brooklyn, you did. Um, yeah. And I wanted to to sort of know if you feel like that that book is still relevant, and also if you have other writing in the works. Um, do I still feel like the book is relevant? You know, yeah, I I have to say I I've, I've never had a better beekeeping experience than in Brooklyn. Like keeping bees in Brooklyn was such a joy. It felt even though it was like shimmying up, like. <laughs> ladders and stuff and putting myself in danger yeah. <laughs> like, it, um, it was really easy in a lot of ways too like rooftops are like generally drier and warmer and so the bees seem happier they seem happier and healthier in those sorts of situations I had far fewer dead outs in early spring with um, with my rooftop hives than I ever have here mm like ground level hives and I also feel like they've got access to plenty of food um, so I do think it's still relevant I hope that people are still keeping bees in sweet things like they are um, my experience of keeping bees in a more rural or so, especially suburban environment has been vastly different um, I could go probably on for a long time about how it's been different but I still think it's a, a practical primer for anyone who wants to keep these um i'm, pr I'm proud of it uh but i'm i'm also interested in uh, writing about other things so i've been working i actually am not super interested in going the traditional publishing route um so i'm working on a series of like farm related journals that will be self-published um that sort of relate um agriculture farming um to like personal growth and like healing from trauma and like learning how to be in the world in a way that feels good and um and not so solitary mm -hmm. so i've been working on that for a few months now so hopefully sometime this spring i'll have something ready to to post on the website wow. uh, but it's been really fun and really challenging writing about that 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, you know having having also written a, a book that's very practical, um, I you know I find the idea of writing stuff that's a little bit more like personal and introspective um, sounds very challenging. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, it's I think writing a book that has a sort of a from like a template that like has been proven to like work in like uh, you know in publishing is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's nice. It's kind of nice to work within those sort of confines. But I felt, I felt like, um, I felt like I wanted to challenge myself. And it might end up being totally, like, hard to read and hard to follow and a big mess. But at least I'm, you know, writing from the heart and writing what I want to, like, like really putting out there what I want to share with other people. Yeah. Um, and that feels more important to me right now. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. What was your relationship to food or growing food or creating food like growing up in Baltimore? It was strange. I mean, I, my family's like really working class and, um, you know, we never really had a lot of money. So, uh, we definitely ate a lot of canned foods. Um, I, I remember everyone in my family like enjoying eating. Um, I just didn't have a lot of really like committed, um, adventurous cooks in my family. Um, so, like, the first, I guess, 15 years of my life were just, like, spent eating, like, very typical food, like, salty, overcooked vegetables, um, like, fried things, um, and lots of sweets. Um, and not until I became sort of, like, a rebellious teenager and started going to, like, punk rock shows and stuff did I start realizing that, like, I could be a vegetarian and I could, like, go and, like, ride my bike all over the city and, like, eat Thai food or eat Ethiopian food or, like, you know. So those moments where, like, I had friends who were just like, you got to try this and, like, showed me a different way, like, really... Um, ignited uh, like some excitement in me over like what was in the world like the, my world was small but the world outside of it was big and I could like taste lots of different things and meet interesting people through that hmm. and so it also gave me appreciation for like my family's cooking after the fact because they they tried really hard to like provide things that we wanted to eat hmm. with like their limited income so sure. like I 
like I feel a lot of fondness for that for that food like I was mentioning to you like the first meal that I remember cooking with my dad was um sour beef and dumplings yeah tell me about that (laughs) yeah I mean it was one of those things that like sounded really strange to me but it's sort of like a a Baltimore version of sauerbraten and so I just remember my dad cooking this stew with like vinegar in it and then he was just like really turned off by it like that's not a combination of things like beef and vinegar and like (laughs) it's not a thing that would appeal to like a five-year-old sure I remember it very vividly and then I remember trying it again as an adult and like understanding my father better (laughs) than I had then nice and and also understanding Baltimore a little bit better and I still have like tremendous love for my hometown yeah and um yeah I don't know those moments like I I'm I'm glad that they sort of evolve in in my memory over time because I feel like I've grown closer to my father, even though he's not with us anymore, mm. um, even as an adult now. Um, it's like a very emotional, uh, an emotional thing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, you have an interesting, what I find an interesting take on, on animals at the farm uh, in regards to you know, the idea of pets. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you had mentioned to me before this interview that you don't believe in pets as much as you believe in animal partners, um, which I think is a great way to describe it. I mean, I definitely, uh, you know, growing up in in, after I read that, I sort of thought back on my sort of relationship to animals. I've never lived in a farm situation and never kept animals in that kind of partnership. But I feel like at least personally, one of the reasons that I sort of have always gravitated towards dogs is that I feel like there is something about a partnership with a dog that is not necessarily the same as like with a fish <laughs> or like as a kid, yeah. you know, as a kid I had like, you know, a terrarium with chameleons. And at some point I had a turtle and like, you know, those things were just animals that I kind of had to keep alive. And it was mm-hmm. interesting to understand a little bit more about animals in that way. But like the dogs I had growing up and the dogs I've had as an adult, I do think of as more of like a partnership. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that necessarily like other people having pets. There's, a, there's I don't think that there's anything wrong. But I sure. just feel like I grew up with I grew up with pets my entire life. My mom was like really into animal rescue, and so we would go to like we would go to to rescues, and we would help them by like you know mopping and changing out litter boxes and feeding dogs and like you know like collecting toys and supplies from people and stuff and so she always loved animals like so I've, I've always been around them um but I realized that there was sort of like I needed to set up rules for myself mm. in order to keep from falling into the trap of like taking in every animal that crossed right. my path because I would like I would just love to be able to to do that because yeah. there are a lot of them um and I realized that in order to maintain my own level of sanity, like I needed to be sure that like every animal that I had to take responsibility for, um, that there needed to be some, I mean, it sounds crazy, but like some mutuality there hmm. um, in order for me to be able to um, maintain a, a certain quality of life for that animal. 
otherwise it's just like I've got finite resources that can only do so much and I don't want to be in a position where I'm like bringing animals onto the farm and then not being able to handle um, giving them the kind of care that they deserve right yeah um so it's kind of you know that's like the baseline like where I started but then I started to realize that on a farm when you start to look at animals as a partner you actually invest in them in a different way like you work with them more, you train them, you have a deeper relationship with them. And I really love that relationship. Like we've got three working dogs, two are livestock guardian dogs, and one is um, is an English shepherd. So he's kind of like a farm collie, an all-around farm dog. He does some guarding work. He helps to keep our livestock um, from like barging through fences while we're working with them. Mm. He kind of keeps everyone where they need to be. And um, that dynamic to me feels so good um, to have to have an animal that you work with that like knows what you need from it is pretty amazing, and they learn really fast, and um, you learn to communicate with them in a different sort of way. Um, so I really enjoy that dynamic, and I certainly encourage anyone, even someone with a pet, to maybe think about that. Like you don't necessarily need to appreciate appreciate an animal based on its utility alone, hmm. but uh, there are some benefits to sort of looking at it that way a little bit. Um, you do invest in your relationship in a different way that I think is um, just as productive, if not more so sometimes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about flowers because uh, I know you've been growing flowers and doing some flower work. And you had mentioned to me that one of your pet peeves around food is people putting inedible flowers on cakes, which I find so weird to even think about. Why? People, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, sure, you make a big wedding cake and people are going after a specific aesthetic, but like putting an inedible or potentially even poisonous plant on there seems so antithetical to me. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a really specific pet peeve. I have lots of, like, really weird, hyper-specific food-like um, pet peeves, but that's one that, like, I keep coming back to that just, like, really bothers me. Like, I'm looking at Instagram a lot for, like, visual inspiration, and I don't really do wedding work. I've worked for people who do wedding work, and I've, like, grown specifically for um, wedding planners and floral designers. But it's always very strange to, I mean, because I think that, like, baking and sugar work and all that stuff, cake decorating, um, is, is, it's an art. It's, I mean, people who um, are good at it are, like, they, they take it very seriously and are masterful at it. And so there's just something so sad and also infuriating about someone going through all this trouble to like make this perfect flat like um seamless cake only to like pick the tops off of flowers and just sort of plop them on top <laughs> it's, I, like, and most of the time most of the time they're not toxic but they're not delicious right. like they're not flowers that like anyone wants to eat with their cake and so to me that's like akin to putting parsley on the side of a plate of like meatloaf or something like <laughs> no one's really going to eat it it's just there to look good sure and so it just I, I hate it I would really like to stop like I'd, I'd like for that to stop happening and people either to like get into like 
sugar work and like cake decorating as like a serious like facet to their like wedding work or just like use actual edible flowers. Yeah, I mean you mentioned the using edible flowers. I was at a wedding last year where the cake was decorated with candied flower petals that were all edible that were made by the father of the bride. Yeah, I mean, that's and beautiful. And he grew all the flowers and then candied the petals and then used them to decorate the cake. That's so sweet. Yeah. I love that. Which was amazing, and it was delicious. Yeah. Well, so, I, I hope people do more of that kind of thing. Yeah. Because I feel like that's special and beautiful and tasted and... It should always, I mean, it's all about things tasting good, so. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so when you were a kid, you wanted to run a hot dog stand. Yeah. I, um, I, my mom and my dad divorced kind of early, and so I spent a lot of time driving back and forth with my mom to, like, you know, to my grandmother's house where she would babysit us. And so we would drive by this on the same road every day, and I would sit in the back seat of the car and just, like, talk and talk and my mom probably wasn't listening <laughs> and I uh, would drive by the same we drive by the same parking lot <laughs> on the same road every every day and I would point out of the window and I'd say mom that's where I'm going to build my hot dog stand when I grow up I'm going to make so much money <laughs> <laughs> and so I just had this dream of like having a little shack that where I would just sell hot dogs and other stuff that I thought was tasty and I still I still have dreams of that I mean I drive by a country store down the road for me that's for sale and there's like nothing going on in there and I'm just like that's where I'm going to open my country <laughs> store <laughs> I do that now and I did that like back at my family's farm in Virginia there's a country store down the road from their farm just like this and I was like obsessed with that and I was like, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to open a cafe right there. When people leave the Baptist church, they're going to come and get sandwiches and some coffee. <laughs> I was just like, I get totally obsessed with certain notions. Farming was actually one of those notions, too. I just like wanted to be with animals, and I wanted to be outside, and I wanted to work for myself, and I got totally obsessed with it. And I would talk about it all of the time, and then it, like every little decision that I made was like stemmed from that like idea and then it eventually happened so maybe one day I'll have a country store too awesome I, I <laughs> hope so I'm sure it'll have lots of delicious edible flowers and other things <laughs> uh, I wanted to touch on the fact that you offer consulting and teaching services as well um, which I think is a great way to share what you've learned and to help others and I'm curious to know like what sorts of projects have you helped people with um, a lot of gardening projects, um, mostly for home gardeners. Hmm. So I've helped set up some um, some small sort of like very productive gardens for people, um, helped set up beehives and sort of given um, guided inspections just to get people started um, with a guiding hand. Um, what else? Um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people call me to ask questions like problem solving stuff so you know we'll have people who are like losing chickens to an unknown predator and they'll call me and talk to me and we'll talk about what it could be and um talk about solutions for you know shoring up their coops so that they don't lose any more animals so it's a multitude of different things um i've had people i've had people call me 
from you know the other side of the country. And I've had people within a town or two for me invite me over. Um, I actually like one very sweet man um, when we were still in New Jersey had bought my book and um, had asked me to come and do uh, guided inspections with him. And he owned a candy store. <laughs> it was so sweet. <laughs> I would go there. He would sell his he would sell his honey in his candy store, and he made like chocolates and you know bonbons and things like that. And I would go, and we would do an inspection, and then he would like be like, "Let's go into the candy store," and then he would like give me a bag, and he's like, "Okay, pick out whatever you want," <laughs> <laughs> which was like a really fun exchange. Um, so it's, it's really nice to, to help people and to help give people some confidence and not just confidence in like doing the thing, but also the confidence to like trust their intuition and ask the right questions so that they can like learn to problem solve on their own in the future. Um, I've, met, I've met lots of really amazing people through through that. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think I feel like that that's a it is a great resource because I think even though, you know, we live in the age of like the Internet having tons of information and YouTube and all of these things, there are there's nothing quite like having one person that you can call or physically being in space with someone to point things out to you um, that yeah. you may not notice because every situation really is so different. Right. I mean, like, sure, you might have a beehive in the city you might have a beehive in the country you could have a beehive behind your house in front of your house whatever in the woods but really looking at that there are going to be variations within the within that anywhere you want. yeah and you know and the great thing about having someone who can mentor you and i've had lots of mentors in the past too is that they can sort of point out the finer aspects of like your technique and it's not something that you would necessarily be able to like pick up on um through youtube or a book or something like that like someone observing you and sort of being like you know if you did this a little differently then you know maybe it wouldn't shake the bees so much and they wouldn't get so agitated or you know that sort of thing yeah awesome well i really appreciate you taking the time i know you know that running a farm is a more than full-time job uh, and especially with the fact that your partner's not always there, um, it sounds fairly intense for him that he goes from like the urban environment and working in IT to like milking the goats. That seems pretty <laughs> intense. Yeah, he actually it, it's it's challenging for him, but he really loves it. I think he's very happy up here. He gets to ride his motorcycle on country roads in the summertime, and nice. so. <laughs> He has, he has few complaints about it. Awesome. That's great. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and, Thank you. And, you know, I hope, uh, I hope the future is, uh, is fruitful for you and for Biscuitwood and for Neil. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I hope to, to keep in touch and follow along when you, you know, put out your new, uh, your new writing and also open your country store. Thanks so much, Harry. Take care. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find out more about Meg and Biscuitwood Farm online, farmermegs, with an S, dot com, and follow along on Instagram, at farmermeg. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Feast 
Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.